0: This is a podcast about Jeopardy!
1: Hello and welcome to Potent Potables. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle. We competed against each other on Jeopardy! Kyle ended up winning seven games. And we've been chatting about the show ever since. Uh, Most weeks we start with analysis of this week's Jeopardy! episodes, uh, but this week uh, was the second week of a rerun of the college tournament. Um, And so... This week, it's all deep dives. Um, It's all deep dives. We each have a deep dive prepared for you. Um, Mine is based on a Jeopardy! moment. I I assume yours is too, Kyle.
0: Like, from this week?
1: Is it based on this week? Mine is not
0: based on this week. No, no. Mine is based on kind of one from sometime.
1: Yes, mine also is based on one from some Uh And um, we normally wrap it up with a quiz. Each of us are wrapping up our deep dive with a quiz. You have two deep dives and two quizzes. This week, if you're someone who's really into the deep dives, lucky you. Um, if you're somebody who turns if it off after the recaps, we'll catch you later.
0: Yeah, see you next you- week.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I am starting off with my deep dive. And... Do you want to guess what I'm talking about, Kyle? No. (laughs) Okay. I feel like you would get it in one.
0: Is it something theologically based? It's not. All right. Is it it something literature based?
1: It's not. Then I don't know. So we are going back to the game from September 18, 2018. It is my game. (laughs) course <laughs> come on uh, uh so we're going back to my game the game where kyle beat me and that happened largely because i blew daily double number three mm. so i am going to just take us in as if i were recapping my own jeopardy game it is daily double number three it's the 18th pick it's in the tomb raider category at 1200 i find it I have 11,200. Kyle has 12,600. Raymond is in third place with 3,000. I wagered $4,000. And I got this clue. 16th century knights tried to plunder this tomb in Halicarnassus, but it had already been looted. And Emily guesses what is the tomb of Alexander the Great? Uh... The location of the tomb of Alexander the Great is unknown. This is the mausoleum at Halicarnassus. The mausoleum at Halicarnassus is the answer to this one. So the correct response would have been, what is the mausoleum at Halicarnassus? And I'm going to answer that question. So here we go. All right. All right. Uh, So Mausolus was a uh, satrap, a ruler of the region of Caria in the Achaemenid Empire in, uh, what is now modern day Southwest Turkey. He was the eldest son of Hecatomnus, who was, uh, also the satrap of Caria before him, uh, who had three sons. Uh, the three sons are Mausolus, Idrius, and Pyxodorus, uh, two daughters as well, Artemisia and Ada. Uh, both the daughters were married to, um, they brothers. Uh, so Artemisia was married to Mausolus, and Ada was married to Adriaeus. Gross. It make, you know, it makes uh, uh, genealogy really easy. Yeah. Um, it was not uncommon at that time, but still. Bleh. And Mausolus reigned from 377 to 353 BCE. During his reign, he moved the capital of the region from Milasa to Halicarnassus, uh, which is near modern day Bodrum, moved it around 370 BC. Um, he t- undertook numerous building projects in Halicarnassus. He deepened the city's harbor um, and used the dragged sand to make breakwaters in front of the channel, built fortifying walls and watchtowers, a Greek style theater, temples, and a fortified palace. Improvements to the road network, um, which benefited Halicarnassus's position in the trade network um, and that and uh, the taxes he levied made him a very wealthy ruler. He was involved in the great satraps revolt of 366 to 360 BCE. It was a series of revolts of uh, satraps that is governors of the provinces um, against King Artaxerxes II of Persia. Um, in one of those revolts, Mausolus fought on the king's side, besieging the city of Adramidium, where the satrap Ariobarzanes was revolting. I am just guessing on all these pronunciations, incidentally. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, of uh, uh, later, there was a more widespread revolt in which he participated against Artaxerxes. Um, but one of the leaders betrayed the group to the king, and the rebellion collapsed. Um, most of them were pardoned, although Ario and knees, the same one from the earlier siege, he was executed. Mausolus undertook um, conquests of portions of Lycia in the 360s, invaded Ionia and several other Greek islands. Um, he was involved in the Social War or War of the Allies, which if you're really up on your ancient Greek wars, you might know what that is. I didn't. Uh, it's a war between Athens and members of the Second Athenian League, uh, which was a confederation of Greek city states that were allies against Sparta and to a lesser extent the Persian Empire. Internal conflict triggered a war. The other city states didn't like Athens' dominance within that confederation, and Mausolus got involved sending troops to support Rhodes, Kos, and Chios against an Athenian siege. Anyway, that's a little bit about his reign, um, but we'll focus in more on the tomb at this point. Um, So planning for the tomb of Mausolus, uh, which came to be known as the Mausoleum, began under Mausolus himself, it's believed, um, around 367 BCE, and construction is believed to have begun while he was still alive. He died in 353. And after his death, his sister wife, Artemisia, continued the project, but she died two years later, around 351. Um, And then it's believed to have been completed uh, around 350. After Artemisia's death, the urns with their ashes were placed in the unfinished tomb. Um, And in a type of ritual sacrifice, slaughtered animals were placed on the stairs leading into the tomb. And then the stairs were filled with stones and rubble to seal the access. After they were buried in the unfinished tomb, the artisans um, stayed and completed the work, even though their patrons were deceased. Construction of the tomb was uh, supervised by architect Pythias of Priene and a sculptor named Satyrus. And the architecture of the tomb is a mix of Greek, Near Eastern, and Egyptian architectural features. We have to kind of surmise how this uh, tomb looked um, based on descriptions, um, some limited images, and some, uh, some pieces that have been uh, recovered or were removed while it was standing and, uh, and have been saved. One of the most helpful descriptions is from the work of Pliny the Elder. So here's what we know about the mausoleum of Halicarnassus. Um, It was built on a hill overlooking the city of Halicarnassus, a large open courtyard had a stone platform in the center, a staircase flanked by sculptures of lions led to the top of the platform um, with statues of gods and goddesses along the platforms outer walls, Uh, statues of warriors on horseback horseback stood at each of the four corners. Um, And then on the platform is the tomb. There's tapering square blocks um, covered in bas relief um, action scenes, um, uh, some featuring centaurs, um, some featuring battles against Amazons. This uh, sort of tapering square blocks tomb structure is about a third of the height of the of the total um, the total height of the mausoleum. Um, Above that section, there is a colonnade. There's 36 slim columns surrounding a central kind of support block. Um, That's another third of the height. So the final third of the height is a pyramidal roof topped with a sculpture of a quadriga, a four-horsed chariot um, with figures of Mausolus and Artemisia riding in the chariot. Pliny the Elder writes this about the dimensions of the structure. Um, He writes, the circumference of this building is in all 440 feet and the breadth from north to south, 63 feet, the two fronts being not so wide in extent. It is 25 cubits in height and is surrounded with 36 columns, uh, the outer circumference being known as the Teron. Above the Tehran, there is a pyramid erected equal in height to the building below and formed of 24 steps, which gradually taper upwards towards the summit, a platform crowned with a representation of a four horse chariot by Pythus. This addition makes the total height of the work 140 feet. So uh, modern excavations seem to indicate that Pliny's estimates were pretty close. Um, The best estimate of modern scholars is that the overall dimensions were about 104 by 85 feet. Um, not exactly what he said, but pretty close. Um, and 148 feet high. Sculptors from Greece were brought in to, uh, to do the sculptures of the mausoleum. Um, four sculptors, uh, their names were Bryaxis, Leocaries, Scopus, and Timotheus. Um, And each of those four sculptors were responsible for one side of the mausoleum. The sculpture of the mausoleum was especially remarked upon. Um, uh, A lot of it was really large scale. It was all painted bright colors. um, And there was a lot of sculpture. Um, Historians estimate that there were a hundred or more figures. The mausoleum stayed intact through uh, the siege of Alexander the Great in 334. However, uh, damage from that siege devastated the city, and Halicarnassus never recovered. The city dwindled over the following years, eventually becoming an abandoned ruin, although the mausoleum stood intact. We start to see it included on lists of the Seven Wonders of the Ancient World, the first of which date to about 100 BCE, and in the 12th century... CE, so we've leaped forward 1300 years here, um, it's likely that the mausoleum was still standing. Eustathius's commentary on the Iliad refers to the mausoleum saying it was and is a wonder. So it's believed to have been extant at that point. It was likely ruined in an earthquake or a series of earthquakes um, sometime between that point, so 12th century and 1402, when the Knights of St. John of Jerusalem also known as the Knights of Malta, also known as the Knights Hospitaller, um, who were headquartered in Rhodes at the time, uh, arrived in the ruins of Halicarnassus and recorded that the mausoleum was in ruins. Um, They used stones from the mausoleum to fortify uh, the castle of St. Peter at Bodrum, and they recovered bas-reliefs from the mausoleum and used those to decorate their castle. Uh, The story from this time period was the basis of my Daily Double clue. A party of knights entered the base of the mausoleum where they are said to have found a room containing a great coffin. Um, They decided it was too late in the day to open it and departed. They returned the next day and found that the coffin had been opened and that any valuables that had been in that space were gone. Archaeologists much later in the in the nineteen sixties determined that grave robbers had tunneled into the mausoleum years before these knights arrived, so likely anything of value was already gone mm-hmm. before they arrived, not stolen overnight. And uh, we now know the bodies had been cremated, so I'm not really sure what a coffin was doing in the space. Uh, but the bodies had not been stolen um, because they were they were ashes. But the story apparently has some staying power and is reported in numerous places. Uh, the knights ground and burned much of the uh, sculptural fragments that they found um, to make lime for plaster for their castle. Mm. In 1852, the British Museum sent an archaeologist by the name of Charles Thomas Newton to search for remains of the mausoleum. Um, he was able to locate the site, uh, by the necessary plots of land and excavate. And he found, um, walls. He found the corners of the foundation, portions of the staircase, uh, sections of the relief sections of the roof, um, and a broken stone chariot wheel from the sculpture at the top. And he also found the statues of Mausolus and Artemisia who, uh, from, from that chariot sculpture. Fragments, uh, the fragments that he found are housed now at the British Museum. Um, at the original site of the mausoleum only the foundation remains as well as a small museum about the mausoleum. And uh, that is the mausoleum at Halicarnassus. What is it? Now you know.
0: <laughs> it is <laughs> and that. so do
1: I. That's it!
0: That is nice. <laughs> oh, that's really cool.
1: Yeah. I feel like this was this was my redemption deep dive. hmm mm-hmm. Nobody knows more about... Well, I'm sure somebody knows more about the mausoleum at Halicarnassus than me, but... <laughs> <laughs> True. Yeah. True. So are you ready for a quiz?
0: Oh. I am.
1: Okay. As you know, there are seven wonders of the ancient world. I just did a deep dive on one that leaves six, and that's the number of quiz questions we usually ask. So... Mm-hmm. This is a quiz based on the other six wonders of the ancient world. Okay. Uh, one question per wonder, although a lot of them I take the wonder as kind of a jumping off point for um, a question about something that's not really about the wonder itself per mm. se. All okay. right. Question one, one ancient wonder still stands and five are in ruins, but the seventh May not have existed at all, which wonders historicity is disputed. I
0: believe, given given that it's in a, it's not actually like Mediterranean, and also, the records are weird. I think that's the Hanging Gardens
1: of Babylon. It is yes, it is the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. May not have existed. Yes. Um, yeah. Maybe a, a poetic exaggeration. Um, Yeah, so you're correct. Ten points. Yay! Uh, yay. All right, (laughs) question two. Ephesus, where the Temple of Artemis was located, is the namesake of the biblical book of Ephesians, an epistle from St. Paul to the Christians of the city of Ephesus. What other biblical book contains an account of a near riot in Ephesus, when artisans who make shrines of Artemis become incensed that the spread of Christianity is threatening their business.
0: I mean, the only... I mean, I I don't know this, so I have to try and do some guesswork. And my guesswork is that, given that most of the New Testament, really the epistles aren't storytelling so much as communique, Mm-hmm. i'm going to guess that it is acts
1: you are correct yeah. very nice nice logic yeah the spread of christianity was uh the keyword that i tried the key right. phrase that i tried to get in there um yes uh so uh a silversmith gets gets very angry um you know that uh christians don't need like shrines and like images of the gods mm-hmm. um and there is this uh angry crowd shouting um greatest artemis of the ephesians or mm-hmm. yeah um which is a, a reference to the temple of artemis and also the um the sort of smaller scale images that they that they were making right. um yeah uh, all right so you are at 20 points Yay! question three the statue of zeus at olympia was a chryselephantine sculpture chryselephantine, which is to say that its exterior plates and panels were made of what two materials?
0: Chryselephantine. So, elephantine suggests ivory. Chryselephantine.
1: If it helps, uh, it is C-H-R-Y-S-E-L, and then the elephantine part. So the the chris part is...
0: C-H-R-Y-S. That just makes me think of like a chrysalis, which I'm pretty sure it's not made of like insect cocoons. Mm, Yeah. Um, I'm trying to go through like elements as to what that, what relation I have to there. Uh I'm just gonna take a guess and say marble and ivory.
1: Alright, not a bad guess, um, but is it's actually gold and ivory. Um mm. the the Chris is um a Greek root word meaning gold, apparently. I yeah, I
0: did not mm-hmm. I never heard that.
1: Yeah. All right. So you are at 20 points, and here's question four. The Colossus of Rhodes is said to have stood about 108 feet tall. A modern statue, one could call it a new Colossus, is modeled on the Rhodes original and intentionally built to the same scale. Uh, Where can this statue be found?
0: Why, that would be on Liberty Island.
1: Yes, it would. Uh, Yeah, Um, I I mean, I I sort of knew that, I I knew that the poem was called the new Colossus. Yeah. I had not realized that the statue of Liberty was apparently intentionally built, um, to be the size of that. The Colossus of Rhodes was said to have been.
0: Yeah. I didn't. Um, That's really cool.
1: Yeah. Um, (laughs) yeah. Only the statue portion itself is the same size with the, with the podium and the, like the arm extending up with the torch. It, it comes out to be substantially taller. Um, but yeah, the like the body of the statue is the, the same height as the Colossus of Rhodes. Hmm. Yeah. All right. So you are at 30 points. Here is question five. The Lighthouse of Alexandria is featured in numerous video games. I had only heard of a couple of them. I know that you know at least one. I will give you three points for every video game you can name that includes the Lighthouse of Alexandria.
0: Um. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna guess that each, Sid- each
1: franchise only counts once. I'm not. I was count. gonna say like
0: <laughs> I mean every Sid Meier's Civilization. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm uh, not. I'm
1: not count- giving you three points for each like each version of Sid Meier's Civilization. Yes, so so Sid Sid Meier's Civilization is one. Yes. Okay, there one we go. Through
0: six. Um Okay. Uh, the Lighthouse is probably also. Ooh, I haven't played it, but how many guesses do I get?
1: I have. Six answers here. I think one, two, okay. three, four, five, six. Yeah. So you can you, we can do six guesses.
0: Okay, I haven't haven't played this one. Although if I mean I guess if the pyramids are in it, um, Assassin's Creed Origins. I don't know yes. if it's in that one. Okay, mm-hmm. I haven't played that one yet, but I know it's set in ancient Egypt. Um, what else? Let's see there are, oh man, there are a bunch of uh, Rome Total War? Uh, yes! Oh wow, okay. <laughs> There's to-
1: Total War Rome 2 is what I have here, but yes, yeah, okay. I think, yeah. Yeah, that counts. Um,
0: okay. Uh, how about I don't know, Europa Universalis? Is that one? Mm, we'll...
1: I do not have that one here, no.
0: Okay. Uh, what else? Is it an Age of Empires?
1: Mmm. I do not have Age of Empires okay. scare. Okay. I'm Goog- I'm gonna have to Google all of these though to find out whether they were omitted from the lists I consulted. Oh no, I'm sure they weren't. Um... I can't be like, oh no, I don't know a lot about Age of Empires. <laughs> I don't.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I might even I might just have to tap out on the rest of them.
1: Alright. Um well well you get nine points. Okay. Um and here are the ones that you did not mention. SimCity three thousand Really? Uh yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I almost gave you like gave you a hint that, that cause like that you wouldn't expect that one. Mm-hmm. Um Forge of Empires.
0: Forge of Empires. Oh yes. that's one of those dumb mobile games. Ugh Ugh
1: <laughs> and um there are a couple titles in the city building series. Um so Pharaoh and Children of the Nile. Um okay. those are I think older titles. Mm-hmm. Titles, Sierra titles, I think. Yeah. Um, Yeah. All right. So you have 39 points. Okay. You may be able to deduce which wonder of the ancient world is remaining. And your category is modern architects.
0: Okay. I'm going to bet it all. I think I know where this is going.
1: All right. The Great Pyramid of Giza is said to be designed by Pharaoh Khufu's vizier, Hemiunu. In the courtyard of the Louvre, a large glass pyramid surrounded by three smaller glass pyramids was built, modeled, you know, similarly to the Great Pyramid, completed in 1989. What Chinese-American architect designed these controversial structures?
0: I believe that's I.M. Pei.
1: You are correct. It yes. is I.M. Pei, and you are finishing this quiz with an astounding 78. 70- Eight, right? Seventy-eight. Sounds right. Seventy-eight points. Ooh. That is impressive.
0: Best I've done in a long time. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, those those pyramids, the, the large one is an entrance to the Louvre, um, and the impetus for their design and construction is that the crowds visiting the Louvre were uh, too much for its original entrance structure.
0: hmm Mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm.
1: and uh so the the large glass pyramid is an entrance into like a subterranean foyer from which the rest of the Louvre is ac- accessed and uh people got real angry about them yeah uh yeah
0: because people get angry about things
1: yeah there are a bunch of reasons that people didn't like them yeah uh they didn't like it was too modernist and inconsistent with the the architectural style and history of the museum, the pyramid being like a symbol of death, was another concern. Hmm. I am Pei is Chinese American, not French, uh, right. so so that's one. Um, and then sort of a that the, the project was like self-aggrandizing for the um, for the president uh, was kind of the fourth mm-hmm. one. Um, gotcha. But yeah, people were not, and there there were there were some critiques. All right, seventy-eight points. Have we have we had? We've had we've had a couple similarly high scores, but that that's one of our highest scores, I think, in the history I, of yeah, the yeah. podcast.
0: Yeah, I th- I'm pretty sure you've had a, like a perfect score or a near. Perfect I
1: believe score. I have. Yeah.
0: Yes. So that that won't be topped. But yes, I think that <laughs> I feel good. That was nice. Yeah. That was encouraging. Moving on to well, I guess I guess now would really be the time that we have to uh, to to. Talk to the audience, break that fourth wall, if you will, and remind everyone that we do have a Patreon. There is bonus content on there, Mm -hmm. Um, despite us constantly saying that we will put stuff up and then we don't. There is stuff there, I Mm -hmm. I promise you. But uh, again, we do do ask that if you have to choose where your money goes, that you find a worthwhile cause to send it to. Mm Mm-hmm. At this time, because, you know, just when you think maybe, maybe we're starting to take a step in the right direction, we see that, oh, wait, there is another football
1: away again.
0: There is is something else that yet again highlights the uh, problems that we have in our society and our country. So uh, we once again will highlight the Community Justice Exchange and blacklivesmatter.com particularly because not only did they do a good job uh, of explaining where the money goes and uh and and what their purpose is but they also have resources for uh, communities across the country if you Mm -hmm. want to look more local yeah so we encourage you to go there
1: so check them out find a way to connect through them or through somewhere uh local to you and uh yeah.
0: All right. My time for a deep dive. So this is... I, I wrote this entirely myself, and it's going to be pretty rambling uh, because it is a topic that uh, I, I have a lot of interest in and I find really fascinating. And so I found myself just kind of writing. And then, yeah. So if I if I have to stop and like wait, collect myself, that's where I'm at. Um, so for my deep dive... I don't have a particular day that this pertains to because it, it'll incorporate a number of different uh, possible Jeopardy questions that have come up. I remember from time to time different things have come up with this. But I, it's a it's a topic that I think gets kind of uh, glossed over, particularly in, in trivia. So I'm talking about a, a classical music topic. And in particular, I'm going to be talking about the early 20th century in western art music uh and so that's kind of a broad thing so i'm not going to talk about like everyone or any everything but uh give a little more information about the really important uh people and aspects of that yeah so here we go
1: all right i'm excited
0: yeah there there are going to be names that you might recognize uh that you probably will recognize um and just try to put them a little more in context and relation to other things that you may know so as we know, art exists in a continuum and there's no defining moment that really begins or ends in artistic style. And if anyone claims that there is, they are either ignorant of what came before or they're choosing to draw a questionable line in the sand. So, mm, don't at me. Yeah. We have our musical periods in western music and and that's the, you know, the the focus of my education was western music. I I am woefully underprepared to talk about Uh, the history of Japanese music or the histories of the various cultures of Indian music or things like that from around the world. Not because they're not important. That was just not what I learned. So Mm -hmm. I'm speaking specifically about Western music and and kind of the classical quote unquote uh, music that we know of. So we have these different periods, but music is always changing and progressing. And I've chosen to talk about the early 20th century because this is when Western music seems to splinter. Uh, before this, there was a fairly clear distinction between quote-unquote art music and quote-unquote popular music, which there still is. Like, it's, there's still a very clear distinction there. But it, is, it was much more, like, concrete, and each thing was much more, like, clearly identifiable. So we look back and we see different periods that we refer to, typically starting with uh, the medieval period, right? Medieval music is when we first get uh, Europeans starting to write down music. Uh, so that's the first written record of notation that we have. Uh, of course, we know music has existed forever with humans. That's not a topic I want to get into right now. But after the medieval period, we have the Renaissance. Makes sense. That's what follows medieval. And then mm-hmm. after the Renaissance, the musical history uh, periods go into the Baroque.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The Baroque is the greatest master of it was J.S. Bach. He died in 1750, which is kind of the the generally accepted point at which the classical era began. Now, in uh, art and architecture, this was the Neoclassical era, but in music, it is simply the classical period, and that goes generally from the mid you know mid 1700s to around 1825 ish and the 1800 to 1825 is the overlap where we get the beginning of the Romantic Era. Uh, The Romantic Era generally covers the 19th century, and then when we get into the 20th century, things start to get harder to define. The Baroque Classical and Romantic periods are referred to as the Common Practice Era, and that's because European music was generally following a common practice. Notation had become standardized by that point, uh, ideas were shared throughout the continent and styles. While there was, you know, an ebb and flow uh, in terms of variations and the amount of variations across the continent, the, the styles were generally similar from country to country. You get Mozart, who was Austrian, German, writing operas that sound very Italian in the classical era, you know, mm-hmm. and yeah. you could send his compositions to any part of the continent. And if you knew how to read music, you could read them because everything was standardized. So this is the common practice era. Um, and that's that's why we can generally talk about these styles of music as just one, right? There is the classical style. There is the romantic style. There's the Baroque style. Uh, and that... standardization made very clear what was art music and what was not however the 20th century saw art music face two really big challenges one was divergent philosophical and theoretical paths among composers and conductors and two the rise of accessibility to popular music as well as the profound popularity of jazz so with all of the stuff going on in the early 20th century art music kind of shattered. It didn't, It. didn't. We left the common practice era. There was no longer a common practice. Uh, so like I said, the Romantic period fits roughly into the 19th century in terms of music. Uh, we had Romantic literature from before and Romanticism as a visual art style doesn't entirely line up with the musical style. And there are lots of reasons for that, but it can generally be thought of as the style of the 19th century. Beethoven, who lived from 1770 to 1827, uh, is generally considered like the main catalyst for the transition from the classical style to the romantic style, particularly in his symphonies. Uh, If you follow the progression of his symphonies from one to nine, you can very clearly see uh, an evolution toward the more grandiose, uh, emotional, romantic style. And after Beethoven, composers had to grapple with the question of what next. He had kind of a Newton-esque impact on music, you know, in the, in the scientific community. When Isaac Newton died, not to say that people just stopped, but there was sort of a, a, a general idea among some people, at least, that, like, Newton had figured it all out. What else are we supposed to figure out? Hmm. He got it. Like, he explained how everything works. Um, obviously, that wasn't true. Science continued human curiosity kept going same thing in music but like after beethoven the reason that the symphony orchestra is what it is is because that's what beethoven used for his symphonies and so for a long time that was the standard orchestra not not because anybody said you had to but because composers were like well he got it right why why mess with it and there have been some changes over time but that he had a very profound effect on it but throughout the Romantic era, composers progressively pushed to the limits of what we call tonal harmony. So tonal harmony is the system that all common practice music is built in. It's based on the notion and the aural experience of a tonic pitch and tonic chord, and that provides a sense of resolution. So harmonic tension and resolution is the driving element in Western tonal music, which can be very simply demonstrated by... Uh, if you have someone play most of a major scale, right? Like, do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, and you stop there. Most of us, our ears are so used to hearing tonality that we're, we want it to resolve up to do, right? We Thank want you. that scale to finish all the way. Exactly, right? It feels tense. It's unresolved. Yeah. And that—that that is Western music. That's classical music in one sentence, right? Everything mm-hmm. is about introducing tension and then resolving that tension and so those with those terms we get dissonance and consonance dissonance is the tense quote-unquote unresolved sound and consonance is the resolved sound the pleasant sound Uh, so moving from dissonance to consonance like i said is the entire crux of western art music up until the 20th century the composer most often said to have quote stretched tonality to its limit is Richard Wagner Uh, his operas used musical techniques that often obscured the tonic moved really far away from tonic or tricked the ears into not recognizing the tonic when it actually came back however all of his compositions can still be analyzed through a tonal lens you can sit down and you can figure out how this relates to the home pitch to the home key to the home base the reason this is true is because it does always resolve the dissonance to consonants all of wagner's compositions even though the ring cycle takes you know 40 days to go through it eventually by the end resolves that dissonance and so like i said that is that is what tonality is and that's the foundational element of all common practice music As we move into the 20th century and after Wagner, we start to get into what are sometimes referred to as post-romanticism, post-romantic composers like Gustav Mahler, uh, the impressionist school of composers who they didn't like being called impressionists, but that's what we call them, like Claude Debussy, they maintained tonality, but they often ignored the dissonance or they... They treated dissonances as colorations rather than harmonic functions. So those particular uh, dissonances didn't necessarily re- resolve. Hmm. But that's not because they were breaking the rules of tonality per se. It's because they were simply saying, oh, those aren't dissonances. Those are just chord extensions. They don't, they don't function harmonically. They're just colorations, right? Uh, they're passing tones to somewhere that we just end up not going. So ultimately the way it sounds is just like we hear some tension and that's the way it is. And our, our modern ears are totally fine with it because we've heard a lot of different stuff at this point. Uh, but at the time it was a new thing. Uh, and so we get into the 20th century after the impressionists, after the post, uh, romantics and really after world war one, as you may know, I'm sure you do in, uh, in the art world world war one had a really profound effect Mm -hmm. uh it led to expressionism and surrealism and all of and dadaism and all these these new uh artistic expressions that were essentially rejections of kind of rejections of of reality right like rejections of of acceptance for what just happened or or maybe coping mechanisms you could call them that too out of this in uh vienna we get what's called the Second Viennese School. And the Second Viennese School began with Arnold Schoenberg. Uh, Schoenberg lived from 1874 to 1951. Uh, he was kind of the quote-unquote founder of this group of group of composers known as the Second Viennese School, and he established atonal composition as a serious endeavor. So it so f- we have finally reached the point where the music is intentionally avoiding a sense of tension and resolution it is avoiding tonality you know even even through all those those previous composers who were stretching the limits and and changing the definitions of things it was still tonal right but then with the the emergence of the second viennese school atonalism becomes kind of acceptable and serious quote-unquote Hmm. uh schoenberg didn't originally use the term atonal he simply referred to it as total chromaticism which chromaticism is simply the use of semitones which if you don't know music theory look at a piano keyboard a semitone is just moving from one key to the very next key like there's no, no, and, and nothing in between it. A semitone is the smallest distance between notes. We have 12 semitones within an octave, and then everything repeats. So his, his approach was to say, I'm, I am employing total chromaticism, which gives equal importance to all 12 tones within a tonal system w- within tonal harmony. Some, some tones are more important than others. Some Uh, lead back to tonic some uh, create tension in a way that is meant to resolve in a certain way but in his atonal technique uh, it simply treats all tones as equal and therefore there is no tonic therefore it is not tonal funnily enough with the rise of the nazi party uh schoenberg's works were labeled degenerate music because they were modernist you may know that hitler loved wagner schoenberg's Mm -hmm. music did not sound like wagner Hmm. it sounded like though it sounded like, you know, things that are hard to listen to. It didn't sound German. It sounded cosmopolitan. It made him think of the French, all those things that are a problem. So Schoenberg emigrated to the United States in 1933 and became an American citizen in 41. Over time, Schoenberg developed a compositional technique known as 12-tone serialism, or dodecophony. And so this technique required that all 12 chromatic pitches be sounded discreetly before any of them can be heard again and he use, utilized a 12 by 12 matrix to determine the, the the series of tones that he would use or the series of pitches and those are referred to as tone rows uh, so if you want to compose a 12 tone serial piece you don't have to know anything about music make a 12 by 12 grid uh, and then write in the letter names of all possible 12 pitches and then create a serial matrix based on that if you remember how to create matrices <laughs> uh, mm. in math class. So that that guarantees if you take you know if you write one of those tone rows and then you pick another row to write it as the next 12 pitches, you're guaranteeing that you will hear all 12 pitches complete before you hear any of them repeated again. And so that, is another way of guaranteeing that it will not be tonal. It will not have a tendency toward resolution. Mm. The two like probably most famous of his students in the Second Viennese School are uh, Alban Berg and Anton Webern. Alban Berg lived from 1885 to 1935. He died fairly young. He brought more of the romantic lyricism into the 12-tone technique. Uh, he didn't have a whole lot of compositions, um, and he is best known for his operas Votsek and Lulu, Votsek in 1924. Lulu was finished later by someone else in 1935, as well as his uh, Lyric Suite. Those are his, like, three most, most well-known pieces. And he is said to have brought more, quote-unquote, human values to the 12-tone systems and uh, has more emotional content than Schoenberg's did. Schoenberg's music, especially his 12-tone music, was very unemotional. Um, it it sort of came to be associated with uh, expressionism, but that was not the purpose behind his his approach. His approach was for the purpose of so it is said emancipating the dissonance Hmm. right because dissonance before always had to resolve to consonance he is quoted as saying that that was his goal whether that's actually true or not um that he actually said it but the emancipation of dissonance is the big idea behind this vote is really interesting it's Atonal, but it's actually really easy to follow the music with the drama on stage. It's a very well-made uh, opera, if you ever get a chance to see it. Mm. The other one, Anton Webern, lived from 1883 to 1945. He was Austrian, another student of Schoenberg. His music kind of went, I, I guess, the other way from Berg, where Berg took 12-tone technique and like really infused a lot of emotion into it webern took the 12-tone technique and went even farther on the serialism route right so he he began using schoenberg's 12-tone technique in 1925 and with that he took the approach to creating these 12-tone rows with a matrix and then he particularly sought out certain rows that had internal symmetries and he would use those in his compositions to create more uh symmetrical structures within these sort of like derived pieces already uh and he even composed entire works based on symmetry uh for instance his opus 21 just titled symphony from 1928 that's probably his most like notable work he also used a technique called i love this word "Klangfarbenmelodie," which is german for sound color melody hmm And uh, so what that is, is he split the melody between multiple instruments. So instead of one instrument playing the melody, the whole melody line, each different instrument would take one or two notes, then a different instrument would take another two notes, and then another one would take one, and it would pass the melody around through the different instruments which thereby added color and texture to the melodic line. So it wasn't just the pitches that were creating the melody; it was also the changes in tom in what we call timbre or tone color uh, and texture. Uh, it's sometimes compared to pointillism in painting, which is, eh, nah, eh. There's arguments to be made there. Webern wasn't appreciated as much in his lifetime, but after the after the war scholars and archivists went back and found more of his uh recordings and lectures and uh and and sketches and his work became more recognized for like the quality that it was a good trivia thing about webern uh he died just you know in september of 1945 not long after the war had ended uh in he was living in occupied austria and on the evening of September 15th, uh, he stepped out onto his porch because he didn't want to disturb the, his sleeping grandchildren in the house to enjoy a cigar about 45 minutes before curfew. And a jumpy American private saw a German man come out of his house near curfew, uh, saw a flash as he tried to light up his cigar, and shot him. And that is how Weber died. Mm. So... That's the second Viennese school, and that was kind of the beginning of this uh, of atonalism in art music. Now, not all composers became atonal composers, right? If if every art music composer had decided, yes, now we're gonna do this, then there would be a common practice in the 20th century. But obviously, mm-hmm. we don't, right? Plenty of composers stuck to tonality or decided to go in a different path. Uh, where they could experiment with expanding tonality or treating different kinds of tonality, right? Some of those composers decided that they wanted to they 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 wanted to incorporate jazz into art music. Most notably would be George Gershwin, right? More more than anyone, mm-hmm. George Gershwin brought jazz to the you know hoity-toity orchestra stage. Mm-hmm. Um Aaron Copeland also did plenty of that as well. Although Aaron Copeland is best really known for his sort of Americana style. Yeah. Um, so Copeland lived from 1900 to 1990. He did dabble in atonalism as did most composers of the 20th century. you know, if only when they were learning how to compose, it was a prominent style at the time. Uh, but of course he's best known probably for his uh, ballets, like. Uh, Rodeo, Billy the Kid, Appalachian Spring, and all of these are clearly tonal, right? But a lot of them uh, sort of evoke uh, the American uh, frontier or uh, pastoral life. Uh, and he does that by employing a different approach to harmony, whereas before tonal harmony was built on what are called triads. Not going to get into music theory deeply, but those are particular chords. They have major or minor qualities, right? It's a major triad, a mm-hmm. minor triad, whatever. It sounds happy, sounds sad, boom, done. So instead, in order to uh, get these kinds of sounds, he used what are called quintal and quartal harmonies. So instead of built on a distance of three notes, the chords are built on distances of four notes or five notes, which create a very different kind of, kind of sound and a different kind of tension and resolution. And so that is one of the kind of like American nationalist styles, right? We, we are, mm-hmm. um, Exemplified by Aaron Copeland. Uh, the other sort of American nationalist style is the incorporation of jazz elements, which we get, like I said, with George Gershwin and later Leonard Bernstein. That is something that is pretty uniquely American at that time, because of course, jazz is a uniquely American art form. And I could talk for a very long time about jazz, but that's not what this is. In other countries, we get very distinct national schools, some very distinct national styles coming out of this, because at the start of the 20th century and kind of end of the 19th century, there was a a renewed interest in folk music and i think this is kind of a hangover from the european nationalist movements of the 19th century and the emerging emerging nationalist movements of the 20th century there was a real desire to 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 find out what it was that gave you a national identity and one of those things was very clearly music so a lot of composers sought out folk music and and studied folk music of their country and incorporated those elements into their works uh, very prominent ones are the the british uh sort of folk style composers Rayfon williams gustav holst um mm-hmm. percy granger was australian but culturally it's pretty much the same uh or was at that time and we get those kinds of styles now you listen to their music it's still obviously tonal right there's still very much a home home key but a lot of folk music rather than being like strictly quote unquote tonal is what we call modal and so it doesn't necessarily use a major scale or a minor scale. It might use a different kind of scale because it's just developed over time without anyone thinking, oh, I'm going to limit myself to these notes. It's just like they sing what comes to mind, right? Mm-hmm. So that's why we get a new distinct sound, especially among if you, particularly if you listen to like Rayfond Williams' music. It, it is, it has a lot of the romantic kind of like uh, emotion and sort of grandiose gestures but the harmonies are distinctly different uh from what was before um another composer that we need to talk about of course is Igor Stravinsky mm-hmm. uh Stravinsky's career spanned a long time he was born in 1882 and he lived till 1971 he is best known for actually his earlier works he, he was writing music before atonalism came came along Rite of Spring is from 1912 which was even before the the first world war uh and you know the firebird and petrushka these these ballets that he's very well known for they established and and sort of like took took the mantle from the previous uh era of the russian composers and really moved forward with something that was fairly unique now when the soviets came to power they rejected Stravinsky's music as not being Russian because he studied in Paris, and they viewed his, his approach to it as very Parisian and very not Russian, uh, which is sort of where Prokofiev was able to work his way in. Mm. But I've mentioned some very important pieces, like The Rite of Spring, Firebird, uh, Petrushka. He has a lot of different works. Uh, he came to serialism in the 1950s, when dealing with some of his younger students and their interest in in 12 tone serialism he went back and looked at schoenberg's music webern's music berg's music uh and he started trying his own and he kind of took his own approach to it and he did a uh he did a a form of 12 tone matrix that was rotational which again i'm not going to mm. get into but it's just an example of like even even with this new style composers were very quickly finding a way to expand it and change it and make it their own. Which is why like, my whole point in this is 20th century art music is very hard to define because there are so many different styles and so many different divergent philosophies and approaches. So that's kind of the end of what I have. I know that was sort of not really focused or linear.
1: Yeah, that was great.
0: But I threw out some names, so there you go. Yeah,
1: no, good (laughs) overview, connected some dots. Um, and yeah, this was fun.
0: Good. Good. I'm glad. All right, here we go. Here's your quiz. You ready? All right. Question one. Romanticism in literature is often associated with Sturm und Drang, which translates to what in English?
1: Oh, no. Um, Sturm und Drang.
0: I'll give you a hint. Um... There are a lot of people in the paths of hurricanes right now who are experiencing both of these things. Oh, is it
1: is it like wind and rain?
0: It is storm and stress.
1: Storm and stress. Uh, I thought I thought storm was storm, but then I I yeah, I, I couldn't figure out what drong was, and it was like maybe it's two parts of a storm. Alright.
0: Okay. okay. Sorry. Mm. That's okay. Alright, question two. Speaking of Sturm und Drang, scholars often point back to a particular work by a particular author as its origin. For five points each, who was this German master and what was the 1774 pseudo-autobiographical work that led the way to Romanticism?
1: Oh, no. Okay, alright. It's a 1774 pseudo autobiographical work. Um, and then what's the other piece? The other pieces leads the way to romanticism?
0: Well, yeah. So who was the author? Okay. And All who, right. what was the work? Yeah, basically, what was the first often considered romantic piece of literature?
1: Did you give me a country in there?
0: Yes, he was German.
1: He was German.
0: I mean, he or she
1: cute <laughs> Okay. Um, I don't think it was she, though. Uh, it's somewhere in my brain. I feel like we covered it briefly in, like, introducing the Romantic period when I took British literature, but I'm not sure I'm going to be able to get to it. No. Nietzsche keeps coming to mind but he's too late. Um
0: Do you, do you want another hint at least for the author?
1: Sure, sure, one more
0: hint. Uh the author may have sold his soul to be able to uh, write this oh,
1: book. Oh. It's um uh Goethe and it's Faust, right? Is that but it? it?
0: it is Goethe, but I that's not the book.
1: Uh, what? Okay, all right. Yeah. So, so I'll take I'll take the half credit.
0: It is Goethe. The book is The Sorrows of Young Werther. Oh yeah!
1: Aha! Uh-huh. That's that's a deep cut. Well, it's, yeah, no, that, it's not
0: that. Yeah. Well, that's why I said it's probably the hardest. <laughs> it is. It is a fairly deep cut. It's yeah. When you think of Goethe, you usually don't think. Oh yeah, Young Werther. hmm hmm Yeah. Usually you go to Faust or, or any of the other things he's written okay all
1: right right.
0: so we've got five points it could be worse could could be worse question three based on cereal but not the eating kind just this month joseph d'angelo was sentenced to 11 consecutive life sentences plus an additional life sentence and a further eight years in prison on 13 counts of first degree murder what was his criminal moniker which i can imagine the california board of tourism is not too happy about
1: Oh, he's the he's the Golden State Killer.
0: He is the Golden State Killer, yes. Yeah. I'm gonna quickly move on from that because I don't want to dwell on it. But you're up to 15. You're up to 15. All right. Question four. This is in the category of things we've talked about with Jeopardy. So, one oh, no. more time. <laughs> who are the choreographer and dancer pair that we should all know who worked with Stravinsky for his Rite of Spring? Um. You know what? Just give me one, and and it'll be it, fine. One or the other.
1: All right. Okay. Um. Is Nijinsky one? Yes. Yeah. Uh,
0: Nijinsky is the choreographer.
1: All right. Way
0: to go. Yeah. Yeah. Naming both. I realized. I think I meant to put that in. I didn't. I didn't just didn't put that in the like. And name who's one. the
1: choreography? choreographer well, the,
0: the choreographer is Nijinsky, the dancer Oh sorry, was, who's the dancer? The dancer no, was Diaghilev. Oh,
1: Diaghilev. Okay,
0: yeah. Yeah. All right, you're up to 25 points.
1: Nice. Okay. Question
0: 5. Among the composers of British national folk-inspired music in the early 20th century are, like I mentioned, Ray Vaughan Williams, Gustav Holst, Percy Granger, though he was Australian. In another country, Bella Bartok did similar, though more expansive, cataloging of folk music. What country was Bartok from where he studied and mastered the music of the Magyar?
1: Oh, uh, Hungary.
0: Yes, it is Hungary. Yeah, he, uh, he went, like, all out. He just, he just wandered around. He just wandered around Hungary, just gathering Mm -hmm. folk music and talking to people, and yeah.
1: Neat. I've played some Bartok in my day.
0: Yeah, I, I love Bartok's music. I actually, like... I studied a bit of his, like, theoretical, like, scale structure and stuff when I wrote my symphony. It was very interesting. Cool. Uh, okay, so you're up to 35 points. All right. Que- Final question. The uh, <clears throat> the category is extinct religious-, religious sects.
1: Extinct? All right, I'm going to wager everything.
0: Okay. <laughs> uh, my favorite portion of Appalachian Spring is titled Simple Gifts. This song is a traditional hymn from a religious sect that no longer exists. Their uh, supposed devotion to celibacy would have meant that none of their practitioners could pass on the traditions to their children, but they did make good furniture and houseware. What was this sect?
1: It's the Shakers. That
0: is the Shakers. Yes, indeed. Mm -hmm. All right, you're up to 70 points. We both did very well.
1: Yeah, people would leave babies at their doorstep, but... That stopped.
0: Yeah, I, I can believe yeah. that too. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's so. That's such a funny story to me. Like the, like, we practice complete celibacy. It's like cool.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Have fun. Yep. <laughs> Enjoy making your chairs and stuff. Got a channel yeah. it somewhere. Uh-huh. But uh,
1: yeah. Nice job. Nice job. Great quiz. Thank, Thank you. you. We did great this week. We did so good.
0: And listeners check it out if I, all of the things all of the names that I mentioned and the pieces that I that I mentioned before listen to all of them they are all great uh, and they are all noticeably different mm-hmm. and if you only have to choose one find the Appalachian Spring Suite go to the seventh like discrete track should be called Shaker Dance or something like that or just Simple Gifts ugh hmm Uh, It's great. When it goes into the brass Mm -hmm. choir. And uh, uh, that was the first time I got chills listening to music in my entire life. It's the first Hmm. time I heard that. So powerful.
1: Yeah. Anyway, thank you, Emily. This was a lot of fun. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Kyle. And uh, thank you, listeners, for spending your time with us. Um, Lovely to be with you as always. Uh, Here's hoping for more new Jeopardy! Uh, when it's safe um, hopefully soon we <laughs> have heard that they are maybe scheduling tape dates or starting to tape um, so that's pretty thrilling um, yeah. make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts uh, if you could leave us a rating or review that would help us out uh, if this is your first time checking us out after uh encountering a plug on uh the two-on-one program welcome this is a weird show this isn't our usual format we're glad you're here come back and check us out when there are jeopardy episodes to talk about
0: yeah we'll we'll cover a lot more trivia in in smaller detail in that Mm -hmm. particular particular setting if you are a new listener thank you and if you are a continuing listener thank you it's great to have you. you Uh, yep. You can get new listeners for us by telling your friends, and then you can talk to them about the podcast, which is really the best part. Mm-hmm. Uh, you and they can find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables One. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpod.com. And we will be back next week we uh, as of right now uh jeopardy has not broadcast what they will be uh showing this coming week but either way we'll still be here
1: we'll be here if we haven't talked about it we'll talk about it if we have we'll do more deep dives or interviews or we'll figure it out yeah so until then may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker